Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens and this is the podcast where we talk about the fascinating subject of sandpaper grades. Well, it might be. Because in each episode, I talk to a different guest about the five things from their life that they'd like to preserve in a time capsule. Four things they love and one thing they wish they could forget. Something from their past that they wish they could bury in the ground and never have to think about again. Someone's bound to pick sandpaper grades one day. Perhaps my guest in this episode. The pop star, musician, actor... TV presenter, writer, and famous woodworker. No, actually, that's just about the only thing that Toya Wilcox hasn't done. Yes, my special guest is the amazing Toya. One of the very few people where one name is enough. Paraphrasing her career, or careers, Toya has had eight top 40 singles. She's released over 20 albums, written two books, appeared in over 40 stage plays, acted in 10 feature films and numerous television shows. Toya is married to the musician and rock legend Robert Fripp, founder and guitarist of the prog rock group King Crimson. And as a musician and singer herself, Toya has toured 33 times since 1979. Her films include Jubilee, Quadrophenia and Derek Jarman's The Tempest. And she's appeared on TV in Shoestring, Minder, Tales of the Unexpected, Pob... French and Saunders, May Gray, Doctor Who, Kavanaugh QC, Mr Bean, Secret Diary of a Call Girl, Casualty, Doctors, and as the narrator of The Teletubbies, and my personal favourite, Brum. She's also had the misfortune of working with me in a stage production of Amadeus, which we talk a bit about in this recording. So let's hear what, from all this, the extraordinary Toya Wilcox chooses to put in her time capsule. (laughs) 
Toya, how fantastic to have you on my time capsule. I can't believe it's how lovely to see you after all these years. Well, how many years is it? Well, it must have been... It was Amadeus, wasn't it? It was Amadeus, that's right. We did a tour of Amadeus, 1990. Great tour. 31 years ago. 31 years ago. Well, it's all a blur for me because in the last 20 years, my music career came back with a vengeance and Mm. I haven't looked back and I've lost all those kind of memories. I mean, I can remember it was a, uh, Peter Schaefer was involved, Tim Pickett-Smith, Richard McCabe, you. I Mm -hmm. I was also doing a daytime tour of prisons of um, Janis Joplin. Yeah. The really exhausting tour. (laughs) It was exhausting. I remember you going off to prisons. At the same time, I was going off with an actor called Max Gold, you may remember. Oh, I love Max Gold. Were you with Helen Baxendale as well. Yeah, yeah, the three of us. So we had the really nice job of going around schools while you would go to prisons and come back and say, oh, my God, it was a bit weird. I'd rather have gone to the prisons. The thing about going into the prisons, Michael, is they needed entertaining and they were utterly engrossed. Uh, And the, the thing that disturbed me was I was able to leave and I was performing to what look like completely normal human beings you'd bump into in a shop, but you weren't allowed to leave. And I found that grossly disturbing. I've been to prisons. Before I was uh, an actor, I worked as a solicitor's clerk. Oh, you look like one now. (laughs) I look more like a judge. (laughs) I went to a number of prisons and they were horrible. Horrible. I think everybody should have a visit to a prison and just, just smell it. Yes. Well, what I experienced, because I was going in with about 20 press people to every prison, was some of the prisoners would hand me notes and I'd open up the note and they'd say, they've only made it like this for you. Uh, They cleaned it, they painted, they made Mm. it look pristine and clinical. uh, And I was getting these notes saying, this has only happened because of you. Mm. And then, you know, you really think about what is going on and prison is prison. Of course, in that time, people would have been slopping out of a bucket in the corner of the cell. So it was just awful. Oh, well. I'm glad I did it because it was a great leveller. And, you know, I was a huge rock star. And suddenly I was, you know, I I was made to experience what life is like for someone who is so desperate. They steal a car. They steal food. They they steal someone's stereo. You know, everyone had a story and everyone Mm. had a reason. Um, it's, oh God, it's such an eye-opener. What an experience. Astonishing. But we are going to talk about things like that. You're going to pick five things from your life, four things that you treasure, and one thing that you'd like to get rid of. You've made notes. Oh, how brilliant. Not only have I made notes, I've done lists. <laughs> Do people have a problem picking these things? <laughs> only sometimes narrowing it down. Okay. Well, my passion list is very selfish. Right. So shall I start? Yeah, go. Okay. My passion is stones. I absolutely love stones. I I collect rare gems. Can't afford diamonds, Mm. but rare gems I can do. And I collect very rare crystals. So I'm holding up a 37-carat topaz. Oh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, And I collect stones like that. And I bought the stone, had it made into a ring, and I don't go anywhere without it. This this ring has survived so much. It's been lost at petrol stations. It's been lost in public (laughs) loos. It's been dropped from great heights. 
And I have always, always worn a blue stone and I feel naked without a blue stone on me. Now, people might say, oh, that's that's really frivolous. What does it mean? People are starving around the world. Uh, For me, this is a stone that has been created out of the creation of the world Mm. from the impact of volcanoes, from mountains forming from earthquakes. It's been there long before I was conceived. And for me, it's it's what I call a universal connection. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me realize I have a very precious moment in time within the existence of the universe. It is not even a speck of dust in the existence of the universe. And I wear this ring just to remind me not to waste time. Ah, very good. Very good. And you don't, do you? I try not to. I always thought that that was the case. When we did this play together, you, to me, had been this enormous rock star. So suddenly I became aware of the fact that you acted and I hadn't really noticed it. I suppose, you know, quadrophenia and things like that you would have noticed, but you would have thought you were in there because of your pop connection. But actually... There you were, this incredibly dedicated actress with an amazing CV already behind you. I I started at the National Theatre when I was 18. It's incredible. Yeah, but I think I was a a bit just too rebellious for the system. I I did Uh, Christopher Hampton's adaptation of uh, Tales from the Vienna Woods with a phenomenal cast. Kate Nelligan got me in the cast. She saw me on a TV play on BBC Two called Glitter and she was watching while having supper with the director, Maximilian Schell, a a great German movie star. And they said, right, we're going to cast her as Emma in Tales from the Vienna Woods. And I never looked back. So I had already, before I had a hit single, done the National Theatre, the ICA, worked with Stephen Polyakov, <laughs> Danny Boyd on Sugar and Spice. He was assistant director on uh, Nigel Williams' Sugar and Spice at the Royal Court. I'd already been in the royalty of acting before It's a Mystery was a hit. Mm. That's the thing I remember about it. And then also, it was your style of acting that I really liked. From my memory of this thing, one of the things that slightly wound up Tim Bigger Smith was that you never repeated. I know. You hardly ever repeated anything. You would be fresh every night. I know, and I now realise how destructive that can be to someone like Tim Piggott Smith, because my whole philosophy was the audience deserved a new approach. And this is how I feel about every show I do. And believe me, I've been on stage with A-listers in America where they have done exactly the same rock performance every night Mm. down to the same head moves and the same solos. And I've thought the audience deserves you present in the room. So when I get on stage, not as much now with an acting play as I do with music, that audience deserves me present in the room in that moment. And that moment is sacred and it's with them forever. Mm. But I realize with Tim Pickett Smith, I had quite large scenes with him as Constanza that my doing it differently every night 
with him playing such a huge role as Salieri, I was not helping him. <laughs> he would have words with me about reining it back and becoming what we were in rehearsals. And I did rein it back. But I think I was a handful for many, many people when I was much younger. <laughs> I totally, totally sympathise with Tim Pickett-Smith dreading being on stage with me. <laughs> Richard McCabe was equally dangerous. And when mm -hmm. we had our couple scenes, I mean, my God, did the fur fly. Yes, I remember. You'll probably forget that actually I understudied Richard in that production and I watched you closely every night. And in fact, Helen Baxendale understudied you. Yes, she did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember one scene where we were getting violent with each other because Constanza goes mad and I was wearing a pregnancy bump and we were in Oxford and I was twirling like a whirling dervish and the pregnancy bump came off. <laughs> and it landed on the stage and Richard just went. <laughs> I mean, we literally had to stuff it back up my corset. We were wild. It was a brilliant production. I had a fantastic time doing it. My favourite memory was, I think, in Glasgow, where somebody, right at the beginning, when Tim was saying, you know, uh, Ghosts of the Future, yeah. how he started to play in a wheelchair as an old man. Ghosts of the Future, come with me, I will take you on a journey. And somebody in the audience shouted, you didn't do it, Salieri. And he, he ignored it. And then they said, we know you didn't murder Mozart. And then eventually he said, no, bring the curtain in. I remember it because um, mm. I, I just felt for him because that opening speech, I mean, how many pages long was it? It was a constant battle with that opening speech. And then they put him on a bath chair. And I don't know if you remember in Sheffield, it rolled off the stage. I do, yes. I think he was in it and he had to jump out. Yeah. You know, he battled so much and was also battling with keeping Compass Theatre Company afloat. And even though we were a sold-out tour, he was still battling with budgets. He was remarkable. It was a fantastic performance as well, wasn't it? It really was mesmerising. And Richard McCabe was playing Mozart for real. Yeah, he played the piano. Amazing. I mean, who could do that today? It's never been done before or since, yeah. I think. No, fantastic. Oh, happy memories. So anyway, I'm going to bring you back to stones. Yeah. When did you first start collecting stones then? When I could afford to. <laughs> it wasn't coloured glass from the beach then. Oh, I tell you what, that is very perceptive of you because the first stone I fell in love with, I was 23 and I think I was on Lynmouth Beach and the stone was the, the size of my head and it has white lines going through it, massive, and I took it. And you're not allowed to do that these days. And that stone is still with me. It's outside my kitchen door now. And if anyone moves it, we have gardeners. If anyone moves it, they get an email and a phone call going, come back now and put that stone back. <laughs> and I love it for exactly the same reason as I love my topaz ring. It's it's part of the big bang and we're all mm. part of that process. And uh, so that's when it started. I was 23, so I'm 63 now, 40 years ago. You're slightly younger than me. Am I? And you look 10 years younger. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I think it's very important to have an awareness of the enormity of time and your place in it, but also not to use it to make yourself feel insignificant, but as you say, lucky. Yeah. Now, this is, God, your perceptive. I love this. I love this. 
I was having a conversation with a journalist from the, the Financial Times last week because um, he was fascinated that I collect crystals. I have 22 rare crystals in this room. It's called the Crystal Room. And he said, mm-hmm. I'm having a really bad time. I've given up on hoping about the future. I feel insignificant in my life. And I, I picked out one crystal. I'd pick it up for you, but it's so heavy, I can't lift it. And I said, look, this is come from a Big Bang we really know nothing about. It's made from carbon. We are made from carbon. This peach I'm holding up and I'm having for my breakfast is made from carbon. We are all the same process. We're all the same thing. Mm. We have a gift of being in an organic body so we can be potential and experience potential. Then we go back to the big process. And he got it. Feeling insignificant is nothing but waking you up to your own potential. We are not insignificant. No. That thing that you say of, of driving yourself on, I mean, not what driving yourself, but actually filling your time, making use of it. Yeah. I mean, Again and again, you. there are many people who would have said, well, all right, I had enormous success as a pop star. And then you might have gone, well, we'll just do a sort of a few reminiscence tours and it makes nice money and things like that. But you don't. You write new stuff, you perform again. And actually, your latest album has charted. Yeah, it went to number one across the board. And this is a very interesting um, fact, Michael, but... Amazon's top seller. So I went straight to number one in the Amazon chart. I went number one into the dance charts, the rock charts. I was number one bestseller in the UK for a week. That's amazing. Yeah. In the official chart, I was number 22. (laughs) And it's because my generation don't use Spotify. No. This is generational. So the the album is called Posh Pop uh, and... So this physical CD I'm holding up Mm. outsold Queen, outstripped Metallica. It just sold in tens of thousands. But I was pipped to the post by the younger artists who are downloaded on Spotify. Yes, and get paid nothing for it. Well, I agree. Well, very little. So it's been a very interesting time. Um, I returned big time successfully to music when I played Wembley in 2002 because YouTube had given younger audiences the chance to experience heritage artists like me and want to see us live. And I've not looked back since. No, I'm not surprised. I mean, when you burst onto the scene, you were completely unique. Yeah, well, I was unique. I, I was androgynous. Uh, I called myself third gender. I was very, very tomboy and very strong. I came from punk uh, and then got adopted by the new wave movement and then into rock. But I do think if I came in exploiting my female sexuality, <laughs> I'd have had a much, much bigger career. <laughs> it's possibly true. Yes, play the game. <laughs> Yeah, play the game. I was a rule breaker from day one. And what what led you to be that? Um, I think, actually, I had to create a character, lack of confidence. I've never had confidence in my femininity. I'm very physically small. I mean, I'm barely five foot tall. And people, how can I put this, in a physicality way, 
people talk down to you. And it's only in recent years I've realized the techniques that short people use to appear tall. And that is you never look up when you talk to someone else. I learned this off the Queen and I learned this off Kylie Minogue is you never crane your neck to look up at someone. You use your eyes to look up. Therefore, you always look as though you're the same height as everyone else. (laughs) I could only have learned that with the invention of phone cameras when you can go online and you can study how people's body language is. And, And I learned it off movie stars who have to act with people like Charlize Theron and Nicole Kidman, who are both over six foot, that the the smaller guys never, ever crane their neck to look at them. So I think my, my beginning characteristics was I made myself huge in the space. So I was a rebel, I was a loud punk rocker, but now, because I can study technique on camera, I can rein it in. My wife is only five foot. Okay. Well, she'll say five foot and a quarter. Yeah, I say five foot one. I just lie. (laughs) But she has exactly that skill, and she's always had it. People never think, I mean, people who are five foot eight say, well, you're the same height as me, aren't you? And she never wears built-up shoes. Yeah. Everybody assumes that she's much taller than she is because she, she goes in with a presence and she just commands the room as it were you have to it does have its benefits i get mistaken for a child at airport security quite a lot and i get brought right to the front of the queue with the line come here little girl <laughs> and then when i turn up they look at me and they go oh my goodness <laughs> it's that don't look now moment you know they kind of, <laughs> i exploit that every time i can well if you can't see over the crowd you might as well burst through them gosh no you'll never get me in a mosh pit there's no point All I can see is backsides. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Toya, we're going to put rocks into the time capsule. We're going to move on to item number two. Item number two is a white pet rabbit who lived with me between 2007 and 2016. He lived for... um, Nine years, he was very, very special. He was a house rabbit. He'd sit at my feet in this office, completely humanised and was with us 24 hours a day. And when I had to go on the road, he went into a rabbit hotel. He cost me about £7,000 a year in dental treatments and in hotels. (laughs) And obviously he's passed away. Rabbits don't have long lives. But I would like to see him again because he was so gorgeous and he put everything into perspective. All he wanted was to eat, sleep, be stroked and hump soft toys. Uh, (laughs) You know, when I was freaking out, and overpressured and everything was too much I just would hold him and feel his little beating heart and it would calm me down he was definitely definitely one of those animals that people would take on an aeroplane to keep them calm what was his name Willie Fred he was called that after the drummer in REM who is my third time capsule item oh right our greatest friend who when he wasn't in america would live with us here um but let's keep to bunny first mm-hmm. willie fred bunny was a pink-eyed new zealand white with huge character that people would actually knock on our front door and ask to see because they loved him so much and <laughs> um, when it, the vet finally said um the rabbit was nine years old and by this time i was carrying him everywhere and hand feeding him with a syringe the vet said no 
you can't keep doing this. If you keep hand feeding him, he can't go through the natural process. He won't die. He, he, he will just keep deteriorating. So the vet and all the nurses came to our house and we put him on the kitchen table and we all said goodbye to him. And they gave him the inevitable injection and we were all holding him as he passed away. And the whole room was in tears. That's how popular this rabbit was. He was the biggest flirt. He <laughs> would pull women's skirts. He, he would flirt with women. He would just look at a woman and completely win her over. We believed that this rabbit was the soul of a Buddha, just biding time, waiting to be reincarnated in another life. <laughs> he was that wise that we treated him as if he was a soul just passing through time. And everyone, when we put him down, that worked with this little bunny rabbit, was in the room saying goodbye to him. There are moments, aren't there, where animals are so clearly thinking, yeah. I think. Oh, God, you can't deny it. They have emotional lives. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but I keep koi fish. And at the moment, we've got a female koi who's about to pass. And the other fish will not let me near her. I've tried to remove her from the pond so she can be dispatched. Every time we go to remove her from the pond, vroom, they stop us taking her away. And what I trust about that is they're telling us to let her go through her own process. And, you know, animals have emotional lives. They have natural intelligence that goes beyond our bodily intelligence. Animals are emotionally connected and they're very, very special. Yes. I saw a wonderful photograph on Instagram, I think, the other day, where somebody said that this was the best example of photobombing they'd ever seen. And it was basically photographs <laughs> of their wedding. Yeah. And there was a dog. And it just was looking back at the camera as much as say, oh, my God, not another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Animals are, I mean, how can we live without them? They're just so remarkable. I mean, they give you more, you say, £7,000 a year on bills, but that must have been worth it. It was worth it. Um, I had a rabbit with bad teeth, so to save his life, literally once a month he had to have his teeth kind of clipped, and it, and mm -hmm. it just was ridiculously expensive. Are they quite large, then, New Zealand rabbits? The largest I ever had was 10 kilos. Oh, my God. It was like, you know, picking up a dog. <laughs> They're bred for their meat, so they grow very quickly. Willie Fred was three kilos. Yeah, but that's a good armful, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, in that case, Willie Fred is in your time capsule for you to revisit. Thank you. Right, we're going to take a short ad break here. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. Let's return to Toya Wilcox and find out what else she would like to preserve in her time capsule. The third item is the actual human being that Willie Fred was named after, called Bill Rieflin. And Bill passed away at the beginning of lockdown last year. I made three albums with Bill. He was the drummer in R.E.M., but in my band, Toyer and the Humans, he was the bass player. He was one of these remarkable human beings that could play every instrument. He would just pick an instrument up, and within three hours, he could play it in a virtuoso way. <laughs> Don't you just hate those people? Yeah, I know some. Bill? My husband, Robert, and I, um, Robert Fripp, we would travel the world together. We were inseparable. Both Robert and I are very, very independent human beings. I, I can have a lot of time alone. Robert can have a lot of time alone. And Bill was the same. But put the three of us together and the dynamics were like nothing I have ever experienced in my life. And... Our time together, our precious time together, I met Bill in 2003 and the three of us became inseparable until he passed. It was about March the 24th, um, 2020. Um, we were inseparable. Uh, what, what did he die of? Do you mind if I ask? He had, uh, it was prostate cancer. He did not have it checked in time. Um, both Robert and I knew he was behaving strangely. Something was bothering him. So I flew to Seattle about 2012, 2012, and I said, Bill, I've come here to tell you to go and have a well-man check. He did, mm. and he was told he had advanced prostate cancer. Uh. Um, but he survived. I mean, he was lucky enough to be in Seattle, which is the world-leading cancer area. So um, he did survive uh, and he was, I hate to say this because I know it irritates cancer patients, but he was a fighter. He would not accept that his time had been shortened by this. And his surgery was brutal because it went into his colon and then it went into his lungs. He lost a lung, he lost part of his colon, lost his bowel. Um, but he was still determined. He was touring with King Crimson <laughs> two years before his death. So he really did live a very, very good life. That's part of what you were talking about, that the preciousness of life, the knowledge that it's, a, it's such a wonderful gift. Yeah. And when people fight like that to just, I want a bit more, just a bit more, yeah. 
he inspired me incredibly because he was always learning. He loved language. So he was always learning right up till the end. And he came over to the UK and I spent two days driving him around the UK, meeting healers I trust and energy healers. Now, healers don't necessarily heal the physical body. They help prepare you um, for what you're about to transition into. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really helped Bill because he had no faith. So whenever he was in the UK, we we did that. We got healers into the house who explained, you know, what the transition of the soul is, how energy transitions, and it can never die. Energy can never die. So it was his learning process, I feel, has helped me not fear death. It's helped Robert not fear death. And we managed to get out to Seattle to see him just a few months before he passed. And we went and sat with him in oncology while he was having treatment in Seattle. Uh, and it, for us, it was a, a shared process, uh, mm. which just gave us strength. And as you say, made us realize that, you know, I'm 63, my husband's 75. It doesn't mean you stop. We live to live. We don't live to die. Absolutely. And it's, um, it's a real lesson that when life is hard and it's a struggle, people really find it precious. So in a way, it's wasteful to not find life precious when it's easy. I know when it's easy. When when you write a song in two minutes, you think you're, the next song will feel like that. You take it for granted. Mm. Um, I, I think people get exhausted by life. Life is genuinely challenging and exhausting. But I think at that point you reach out and, and this is where friendship and love and community helps put you back on your feet. So um, you mentioned Robert. So I'm going to say, how did you meet him? Because it's just an extraordinary thing that's coming together of these two greats from the pop industry. Well, thank you. Um, we first met in a taxi on our way to a Nordoff Robbins charity lunch at the Hotel Intercontinental on Park Lane. And we didn't really know each other, but we had the same management. And I found this legendary rock guitarist who I knew very little about. I had his album Discipline, but that's the only album I knew about from 1981. I didn't know his 1970s history or 1960s history <laughs> when he opened for the Rolling Stones in Hyde Park. Um, wow. And I thought he was a very quiet, gentle, considered human being who didn't speak until he'd considered what he was going to say. And that just brought <laughs> out the worst in me. And I goading him and teasing him and provoking him in this 20-minute taxi journey. And then we had our photo taken with Princess Michael of Kent, and I didn't meet him again for about another five years. By which point, and this is what my husband does, he's known for this, he was living in New York at the time, and his diary wasn't filling for a three-week consecutive period, and he decided that I was his wife. <laughs> he said he just knew. He knew as soon as he met me, I was his wife. So he came back to England, arranged for us to make an album together, and he proposed to me. Wow, that's amazing. Now, another angle on that story is he gets into a lot of trouble because he has dreams that come true. And he dreamt he was in the studio with David Bowie about eight years ago. And he wrote this in his diary. Oh, in my dream, I was making an album with David Bowie. Tony Visconti was producing. Well, at that time, Tony Visconti was producing The Last Day, mm. Bowie's um, penultimate album. And Visconti hit the roof 
because the press picked up on Robert's diary as actual and announced Bowie making the album. No. Yeah, and it was a dream. That's incredible. It is incredible. And everyone in our community, because we live on a high street, we're surrounded by shops and businesses, and they're all our best friends. Everyone on this high street knows that if Robert has a dream, it's going to come true. (laughs) So he's like our little talking newspaper. (laughs) How brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that my awareness or my knowledge of of people in Robert's position, I mean, he'd had, what, 10, 15 years of extraordinary success. Yeah. Worldwide success. Yeah. Regarded as one of the greatest guitarists of all time, I think. So to suddenly meet someone, Well, what I'm going to say is that in that situation, as you'll know, having been in the pop business, the opportunity of meeting beautiful women is almost inevitable. It's thrown at you all the time. So the fact that meeting you in the back of a car, he made that decision, that's astonishing insight. It's intuitive, isn't it? And it's amazingly certain. That's real love, I think. That's true love. Yeah. A brutal observation of it is that I I didn't want to have children. I'm phobic about childbirth. And my family life wasn't comfortable. As My childhood was not comfortable. So I wasn't attracted to having a large family. And Robert met me. I was highly independent. Uh, I didn't need his money. I didn't intend on getting pregnant. Um, And he he could see that he could have a relationship with someone that would still allow him his freedom to travel and his independence. And you'd understand his world as well, wouldn't you? Yeah, I did. But, you know, I've had to fight for my place in this marriage. And, you know, in the beginning, the first two years, I mean, I was like a, a, a war warrior fighting women off who who felt that they could do better than me and he's he always said it was never a problem for him but he was always being targeted by women Mm. because he had a reputation of being highly sexed and he said well that that was myth rather than legend and but the first two years I found incredibly tough and now I feel I'm in my prime at 63 and there's a lot going on. My career is just ascending. Uh, I'm very, very confident uh, in, in our, our marriage and everything, but it was a tough beginning. Well, I'm going to take you back and uh, I will put Bill into the time capsule for you. Thank you. And as with all these things, wouldn't it be lovely to see them again? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel Bill is with me. Um, My album, Posh Pop, I'm utterly convinced he was standing beside me, helping it be the success it became. Brilliant. Yeah. Don't feel separated from him at all. No. Okay, so that's number three. Yeah. So we're going to move on to item number four. It's a phone call. Mm -hmm. And you will know this, and every actor and performer will know this. It's the very first phone call I ever had telling me I'd got the job. And the whole world is yours in that moment. I was, I think I was 17. I was at drama school. I'd been seen by the B-Cat brothers, Nick and Tony B-Cat, playwrights, music writers, to do a half-hour play with Phil Daniels and Noel Evans about a young girl breaking into the top of the pop studios to become a singer. And I'd been down to London, done the audition with Phil Daniels, never expected to hear back. 
Um, it was a Sunday, 11 o'clock uh, in the morning. I was about to go out and visit Blenheim Palace with some drama student friends. The phone rang at my home, Grove Road, Birmingham. I picked the phone up and it was a secretary saying, Toya, you've got the job. You start on Monday. Oh. I, I, I cannot tell you that moment has never, ever been overtaken by anything else. No. Because I just knew my life was about to change. It, it mm. was glorious. And the nervousness, the feeling of being an imposter, you know, can I do it? Will I be okay? Of course I can do it. I'm going to be the best ever. Uh, you know, the, you just travel through the universe of potential and egotism and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. This is only the beginning. You know, all those emotions, that day was the heightened day. And when my friends came to pick me up, I just said, I've got the job. <laughs> they were elated for me, elated. I can imagine. Did you sing in that show? Yeah, I had to write the music as well. Wow. Yeah, uh, Tony Beacack put me together with a band called Bilbo Baggins, who were like the little brother to the Bay City Rollers, a Glasgow band. They were gorgeous. I was just loved them all. And I was Pebble Mill, the building Pebble Mill. We rehearsed in there. Bilbo Baggins, the band, were put into a room. So I would rehearse with Phil Daniels and Noel Edmonds um, in the daytime. And then I'd go into the room with Bilbo Baggins where we would work on lyrics together and music together. And they taught me how to sing with a band because I'd never done that. So I composed the lyrics with Tony B. Cat, Bilbo Baggins. And then the band moved into the studio when we were actually recording this half hour play called Glitter. And we performed it live. Oh, my God. Just looking back, I wish I could do it now. I wish I could go back as Toya now with all of my experience and record that play now and sing it now because I would give a performance that would be Oscar winning. <laughs> um, my performance was very, very naive. Not bad, but just naive and totally inexperienced, which I think is what the B-Cat brothers wanted. But also... I suppose, what attracted people at the National Theatre to you. Yeah. They saw this naivety, yeah. but a freshness and something new. It is extraordinary because Kate Nelligan and Maximilian Schell were watching that go out live. And we made it in May of about 76. It went out October 76. And by November, same year, I was living in London and a member of the National Theatre. And that's all thanks to Kate Nelligan, who took a real shine to me. I ended up living with her for nine months. She had a granny flat at her house in Stockwell. And she said, come and move into that flat. She's fantastic, Kate Nelligan. She's amazing. And Brenda Bletham was in the cast as well. How lovely. They just kind of scooped me up, tolerated me and supported me. They were wonderful people. I did a fantastic play with Brenda. Well, it was a terrible play, actually, but uh, we had a fantastic time doing it. Where did you do it? We did it at the Almeida. Ooh. I know, sounds posh, doesn't it? Why didn't you say it was a terrible play, the Almeida? It was a terrible play, sadly. They chose badly, but she was fantastic in it, and I had to grab her breasts every night. Oh, dear <laughs> Brenda. I know. How long ago was this? So that would have been at the end of the 90s. 
It was fun. Well, you got older and wiser by then. <laughs> I was wise enough to know that we were acting. She did this extraordinary thing. She played a sort of a frustrated housewife, which you can imagine she did absolutely brilliantly. Yeah. And she knew that I was famous for my love life. And so she started talking to me about it and then said, what's it like? And I said, what? And she said, when people touch you. And I said, do you want to find out? She said, okay. So I said, well, let's start here. And I put my hands on her breasts. And I did that every night. And then one night I did it and I slightly moved my hands and she fell to the floor going, oh! <laughs> Afterwards, I said, I'm so sorry. What did I do? And she said, it's all right. I've got very sensitive nipples. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I love Brenda. She's yeah. so generous because on the first day of rehearsals at the National Theatre, she didn't know me from anyone else um she said have you got digs and I said no I'll go back to Birmingham and she said you can't do that every day come and sleep on my sofa and I thought well I don't want to sleep on a sofa <laughs> this, is, this is what I was like and then Kate Elegant says I have a granny flat I'll stay there you know talk about looking a gift horse in the mouth I mm. just I was a very ill experienced young person and she was well established by then, wasn't she, yeah. Brenda? At the National, she'd done. She did uh, bedroom farce. I remember she was fantastic in that. I loved and adored not only for her talent but her generosity as a human being as well. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm. A, I'm just. I've gone into a revelry. <laughs> <laughs> I've never touched her breast, though. No. No. Well, I never really have. No. I mean, it was. You know, it was acting. Yeah. There we are. Oh, that phone call. Well, we're lucky in our profession that we've all had those moments, but I think everybody must have a phone call when they think it's going to affect their life and that moment comes. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Particularly when you're young. I have to tell you one that I'm now allowed to talk about because I had to sign a disclosure contract <laughs> about it. Um, I went for an audition three years ago and I walked into the studio and it was. A, it, it, I thought, this is a blind audition. There's cameras everywhere. There's the top casting people in the world in the room. And they said, we can't tell you what it's for. The script is not the script you're up for. And I learned this to a T. I gave them the performance of a life. And I, I just thought, well, this is weird because it, it is a blind audition. And I left and got the phone call. JJ Abrahams is calling you in an hour. Oh, my God. I actually ran to the loo. I thought I was going <laughs> to... I'm not surprised. It didn't happen. It didn't come about because I thought it was a joke. <laughs> and when the call came, I asked too many questions. And, you know, I was trying to test to see if I was being wound up. <laughs> and I probably came across as far too controlling. So it didn't happen. Oh, uh, well, yeah. not everything comes off. We've all had those as well, where you're close. But how fantastic. I will definitely take that. The phone is ringing. Inside there, you can pick it up anytime you like. And somebody <laughs> says, Toya, you've got the job. You start on Monday. Yeah, I'd love that. Right, OK, we've got one thing left. Now, this is something that you're supposed to get rid of from your life. Um, it's the combination of fresh raspberries and almonds. Oh, really? Uh, see, that sounds delicious to me. No, I can eat them separately. <laughs> but if you put them together in a dish, I get really, really funny. <laughs> Part of it is my dear mother had a habit of doing what you asked her not to do. 
So an example of this, um, I don't do pantomime anymore. I don't have to do it and I'm too old to do it. It breaks your body. But I would have one day off at Christmas and that would be Christmas Day. And my mother would say, what would you like for Christmas lunch? And I'd say, I would love a trifle. I want a trifle. I want it full of sherry and cherries and no almonds, no raspberries. And she'd arrive on Christmas Day. I've made you an almond and raspberry trifle. She would always do exactly what I asked her not to do. So if she made me a cup of tea, I'd say, mum, no milk, no sugar, just black tea. There's your tea. It's got three sugars and milk. It, it was always that. Mum, um, turn left, turn left. She turned right. <laughs> and it gave me a phobia of almonds and raspberries. And I bought two cottages, um, one for them to get them out of Birmingham because they started to get break-ins because people knew they were my mum and dad. So I retired them into a beautiful cottage on the River Avon. I bought the cottage next door and I needed to do this cottage up and it had wild raspberries growing. And I started to write a book one morning and I was in the first chapter in the moment, delivering this first chapter at my computer in the silence of my cottage. Unfortunately, I put a doorway in between the gardens, so my parents <laughs> and my mother was outside the window going, you've got to pick the raspberries, pick the raspberries, the raspberries will rot on the vine. I got a pair of shears, I cut the raspberries and I threw them in the fucking River Avon. <laughs> <laughs> and I've not eaten raspberries soon. And I said, there's your fucking raspberries. <laughs> You've had quite a relationship with your mum then over the years. Oh, I don't know where to start. I have to write the play, the book and the film about this relationship. You should. Well, I never knew. I never knew until... December the 3rd last year when Ancestry.com contacted me to tell me some press cuttings they found is my mother very lightly at the age of 14 witnessed her father murder her mother. There, there was a court case. It was a crime of punishment. My mother was born out of wedlock, which is why she was such a snob and kind of refused to acknowledge anything um, in the working class system. She was very, very complex, really complex. And she was living a character she created so no one could discover her history. And it, she was just driven mad by her history. And uh, she had a chaperone. She was a dancer, a professional dancer. And she had a female chaperone who even shared a bedroom with her. My mother was never allowed to be alone, probably because her father only went to prison for three months. He escaped the gallows. He was free. And I think the chaperone was with her right, right up until she married my dad to make sure the father never got near her. Good Lord. And she had to live this lie. My mum could hardly write. She could hardly read. But she was a trained dancer. Uh, she opened for Max Wall on tour. Very complex woman. And I think when my father came along and proposed to her, my father was wealthy, she saw a way of escaping her past um, and closing the doors on that. So my relationship with my mother was one of the most destructive, negative things I've ever experienced in my life. It was never a positive experience. Um, 
because she would always do the opposite. And we feel she did that because if she showed me love or she showed me what she desired, I, I would die. Um, so she always did the opposite, mm. and almost to the point of killing me at times. So when you found this, this incredible thing out, only recently, mm. did you suddenly reevaluate the whole thing? Or? God, yeah, I, I was, I mean, I had to be with counsellors in the room when they told me they, they were so concerned about how it would affect me. And it did affect me because it was literally like a, a jigsaw puzzle falling out of the sky of my past and just all falling into place. I suddenly understood this extraordinary past. So did my brother, my sister, my husband. I mean, all of the family spouses suddenly realised why my mother would destroy every moment. It's because she felt if she didn't, that we would be in danger. Mm. Yes, you can't be happy. You can't be happy. Oh, Lord. And I've really had to evaluate everything in the in the last um 10 months i've had to evaluate everything and that there is a song on posh pop called barefoot on mars which has gone viral uh, because it's about that moment and it's i just wish she could have told us while she was alive because we would have got her a therapist we'd have done therapy with her we'd have been kinder to her rather than exasperated by her she refused medical attention she refused medical help she was destructive on every level to her physical body and her mental health and yours but i think she made me who and what i am and my god i'm tough yeah yeah you are toya well I'm going to put that into the time capsule for you, but I don't think you really need to lock it away. I think you're perfectly capable of dealing with it. You're an extraordinary woman. (laughs) Thank you. Just don't show me a raspberry. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly not with almonds on it. No. And can I add one more thing, which is purely for my oral pleasure, and that's Mm. a Cadbury's cream egg. (laughs) All right. In the sealed compartment are raspberries and almonds and sitting on top of it, a lovely Cadbury's cream egg. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, brilliant. How wonderful to talk to you. How lovely to see you again. Looking so well. Well, thank you, and I hope that we get to work together. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Keep well. All right. Bye. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Toya Wilcox. How does she find the time to do all those things? Well, it's a mystery. Yeah, not the greatest link. So, before everyone buggers off, and I wouldn't blame you, let me tell you that you can, of course, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on most podcast providers. You can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter and Instagram, or even Facebook, if you're that way inclined. The theme tune is cleverly entitled My Time Capsule, The Theme Tune, and is available to download or stream on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast, and the producer was John Fenton Stevens. Many thanks to Toya for being our guest, and thank you for listening. We have lots more episodes for you to listen to and lots of new ones coming up, so do tell your friends. Our next episode was going to be one of those weird, seemingly pointless ones where we try to record the whole thing without pronouncing a single T. Hmm. Yeah, but then we decided not to bother. Well, let's face it, we'd never hear the end of it. Bye. Bye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 